If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 13, where we're going to be looking there at our, our main text. March 2nd, 1863. During the Civil War, Senator James Harlan introduced a resolution in the Senate asking President Lincoln to proclaim a national day of prayer and fasting. The Civil War was underway. The country was being ravaged and war-torn. The resolution was adopted March 3rd and signed by Lincoln March 30th. The resolution read as follows. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God... In all the affairs of men and of nations has, by a resolution, requested the president to designate and set apart a day of national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, Yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And in so much as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subject to punishments and chastisements in this world. May we not justly fear the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be put a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and encircled and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do, by this proclamation, designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request all the people to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes and keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. 
In witness whereof, I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed, done at the city of Washington, this 30th day of March in the year of our Lord, 1,863, and of the independence of the United States, the 87th, by the President Abraham Lincoln. Pray with me. Father, we come before you now, and as we read that proclamation, it is shocking to us in this day and age to think that a president would proclaim such a thing, fearing you and not men, declaring your truth and not pleasing men. Father, we have fallen so far short of where our country has been. We have done everything we possibly could to get you out of our lives, to reject your word, to get you out of our government, out of our schools, out of our lives, and instead put ourselves on the throne as God and to invent false religions and fancies to trust in rather than our creator. And Father, it is humbling to just read this And to realize that at that time, the nation gladly accepted that. And Father, it wasn't that long ago. But Father, we are also thankful that those who are truly yours still humble themselves, still pray, many still fast. Father, we are thankful that those who are truly yours will continue to walk in your light, proclaim your truth, and live for your glory and honor. Father, I ask that as we look at the discipline, the godly discipline of fasting this morning, we would leave here with a clear understanding of what your word says and how to apply it to our lives for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Acts chapter 13, we find our text for this morning. The book of Acts is a continuation from the gospel of Luke. Luke wrote Acts after uh, Jesus uh, dies and gives his great commission. Luke then writes Acts. He probably finished up one scroll and starts another. We call it the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit, as only two of the apostles are kind of uh, uh, mentioned as key figures, Peter and Paul. We see in the book of Acts that um, the Holy Spirit is moving to establish the church. And Luke begins to tell us in the very first verses in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but you will receive power, Jesus speaking here, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And so right off the bat, Jesus says, you are going to be my witnesses, and it's going to be like a pebble dropped in a pond where there's going to be a concentrated splash in the middle, and then there's going to be ripples that are just going to go out from there. It's going to be in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, it just so happens that that verse, verse 8 of chapter 1, is a good structure verse for the entire book of Acts. Because in the first eight chapters, we have Peter, the primary figure, uh, proclaiming the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem, and the gospel begins to spread, and thousands of Jews come to Christ. They are the foundation of the church, for salvation is to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Then in chapters 9, uh, we have the apostle uh, 
Paul, who then is called Saul, come to Christ when the Lord appears to him on the road to Damascus. Uh, we also see some persecution arise, which the Lord uses to begin to disperse the believers to Judea and Samaria, which, of course, happens in uh, chapters 9 through 12. Then when we get to chapters 13 through 28, it focuses on the ministry of the Apostle Paul, where he then preaches the gospel to the Gentiles to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this is where our text begins this morning. Paul and Barnabas are at Antioch, and they're being commissioned on Paul's first missionary journey. And this is what we read, starting in verse 1 of Acts 13. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who is called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then... When they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now from this text, I want to explore first the doctrine of fasting, then fasting in the Old Testament era, then fasting in the church era, and then talk about the practice of fasting in the everyday lives of believers today. So let's look at these things. I just wanted to confess right off the bat, the the, the main thrust of this text is not fasting. So um, we're not going to look at the main point. The main point is Paul is being commissioned on his first missionary journey. However, this is the first place in the New Testament where fasting is mentioned among Christians after the start of the church. So it's a great text because fasting is mentioned twice. Twice, once in, in verse 1, I think it is, and then again, actually in verse, let's see, is it 1? Let's see, yeah, verse 2, and then again in verse 3. So it mentions it twice there, and uh, we see how, how fasting was being practiced, and the question is, why is it being practiced? How is it being practiced? And should we pra- fast today? Now, you might be thinking, well, why why didn't you pick another text that like specifically addresses fasting in the church? Because there isn't one. This is the best one. So we're going to look at that, and that'll probably give you a hint of what's going to be coming up. But Acts is a book of transition, and we need to understand that. Uh, whenever you study the book of Acts, a lot of false doctrines of cults have been built off the book of Acts. Why? Because the book of Acts is a book of transition. Remember, in the Old Testament era, and during which included the whole life of Christ before he died and rose again, they were under the law of Moses. There were Jews under the law of Moses. Not only that, they had many Jewish traditions. And they observed those traditions. Well, when they came to Christ, they didn't just instantly, you know, give their life to Jesus and just pitch everything Jewish. There was a time of transition when they were kind of still living under the law of Moses and they had come to Christ when they were transitioning away from Judaism under the law of Moses to Christianity under the law of Christ. And Acts records that. So whenever you study the book of Acts, you must be very careful not to take a descriptive text and turn it into a prescriptive text. What that means is, the book of Acts, like the Old Testament, describes many things. 
But just because something is described doesn't mean it's prescribed. There's a whole difference there. We always take the texts, the letters to the churches, which prescribe, tell us what to do and not do, to then evaluate all the texts that describe things. Our text is describing what happened. It's not prescribing what to do. It's just telling us that they, being Jews in the first century, being steeped in the tradition of the Jews, having the habit of fasting, then fasted. That's what's going on here. Now, I just want to make some questions, some observations here. The text says in verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and then if you look down in verse 3, then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So here we see fasting twice. Fasting twice. And the question is, what is fasting? What is fasting? And fasting is just to deny yourself food and or drink. That's it. Fasting. There's three different kinds of fasting. There's normal fasting, and that's when you choose not to to eat any food, but just drink water. There's partial fasting, and that's when you choose not to eat certain foods and or liquid, drink certain liquids. And then there's absolute fasting when you don't eat anything or drink anything. Now, just saying, talking about fasting, I know some of you who are probably hungry right now, thinking about lunch, might be thinking to yourself, boy, that sounds a little scary. Um, you know, I mean, I hope he doesn't like get on us about fasting and just relax, just relax. Uh, if you, if you are in a cool room and you don't really exert yourself, you can last two months without eating and 12 days without water. But if you exert yourself a little bit, you can only last about 40 days without eating and about three days without drinking. So I know that, you know, when your teenager says, because they haven't eaten in 15 minutes, I'm dying. Um, They're not. And uh, if you chose not to eat or drink for a period of time, um, it's it's not going to kill you. Okay, uh, in most cases. Now, granted, you might have a medical condition or something, and you might need have to eat or drink, and so you should make sure you talk to your doctor before you engage in any sort of serious fasting. But um, for most of us, we would do well to not eat for a while. Um, we could lose some of our outer man and not miss it a bit. But not only are there those three different kinds of fasting, normal fasting, partial fasting, and absolute fasting, there's also different motives. Why do do people fast? Well, some people fast because they want to lose weight. Some people fast because they want to detoxify. Some people fast because they're depressed. Some people fast because they want to pray. Some people fast because they have a huge decision they're facing and they, they just want to devote that time to prayer. There's a whole bunch of motives to fasting. And the motive is very critical, especially when we're talking this morning. I want to focus primarily on fasting for God honoring and spiritual reasons, not just practical. There's a lot of practical reasons people fast and those practical reasons are fine, but that's really not the emphasis for this morning. But our emphasis is on spiritual fasting unto the Lord. And if you're your motive isn't right or your method isn't right, you can actually be sinning when you fast if you don't do it correctly. I'll give you an example. 
in uh, the book of Zechariah, chapter 7, verse 5. Uh, Zechariah um, is preaching to the people. God is speaking through him to the Israelites. The Israelites sinned and sinned and sinned. And finally, were taken captive to Babylon. And there they lived for 70 years. And then they returned. And the Lord said this to them in Zechariah, chapter 7, verse 5. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? And the implied answer is no. Well, what's going on here? Well, what happened is, is because of their sin and their continual rejection of the word of God and the prophets of God and the judgments of God, because they would not repent, they sent, God sent Nebuchadnezzar to wipe out Jerusalem, destroy the city, and take a whole bunch of people captive to Babylon. Those people in Babylon then instituted fasts in the fifth and seventh month. They pretended when they were fasting to be fasting under the Lord. Sorrow, uh, supposedly for their sin. God says, no, that's not why you were fasting. You weren't fasting for me these 70 years. When you practice those fasts, you are really fasting because you are sorry you had to suffer the consequence of your sin. You were sorry that you couldn't sin against me and stay in Jerusalem. You were sorry that the consequence of your sin brought you to Babylon. And that was the truth of the matter. And so for those 70 years, they had continued to sin against the Lord by hypocritical fasting. And so we can see just by that one example... Um, Fasting needs to be done right. If you pretend to fast over your sins, and yet in your heart you are really just regretting that you have to suffer the consequence of your sin, that is to sin upon sin. It's perfectly fine to fast to lose weight or detoxify or protest or save money. Uh, I read a whole bunch of stuff on fasting. Uh, One person even would fast on a regular basis and he'd take all the money he saved from the food he didn't eat on the days he fasted and give it to the poor. I mean, you know, that would be, you could just imagine that there are a lot of good things you could do with fasting. The early church father Ambrose said, quote, Do not limit the benefit of fasting merely to the abstinence from food. For a true fast means refraining from evil. Do not let your fasting lead to wrangling and strife. You do not eat meat, uh, but you devour your brother. You abstain from wine, but not from insults. So all the labor of your fast is useless, end quote. What he's talking about there and what he's alluding about there, which we're going to get to in a minute, is fasting has some really great spiritual parallels. And we're going to see what those are. The Bible gives many examples of spiritual motives for fasting. Let me just give you seven of them. One, you might fast to devote yourself to prayer. And then, you know, will you say, well, well, how does that work? Well, just try not eating from now on till tomorrow morning. And whenever you're hungry, think, I need to pray. And then pray about something important. You'll be reminded, and increasingly so, that you need to pray. Because your stomach's going to remind you in a more intense way, right? As the longer you fast, the more it's like, your stomach's, it's in there. It's going to get, pray, pray, pray. And so you're just constantly being prompted to pray, pray, pray. Because your stomach's going, it's got a little prayer alarm that you swallow. You might make, uh, you might have to make a big decision and you might pray and, and 
before making that big decision, we see Jesus doing that. Remember before he chose the, the disciples, he spent the whole night in prayer because he knew that these men were critical. He had to get one that was going to be a traitor and 11 that were going to preach the gospel. And he stayed up all night. He prayed all night and he went out and chose the 12. Big decision. Or you might fast because you need God's wisdom in a trial. You're facing some huge trial, some decision, some thing. You don't know what to do. And so you take the advice of James. If anyone needs wisdom, let him ask of God. And so you think, you know what? I need to ask God. I'm going to fast. And every time my stomach growls, I'm going to ask God for wisdom for this thing I'm facing. Or maybe you need deliverance or protection. Maybe somebody's suing you or stalking you or whatever. Maybe you're in the military and you're going to be shipped off to who knows where and and you're needing protection. And so you fast and ask God for concentrated um, a time. You pray asking that he protect you. Uh, maybe you desire success in ministry so bad, you ache so bad for the conversion of souls or that people grow or that your ministry um, explode and just make a huge impact that you know other people have had it happen. You can see in history that God has blessed certain, certain people just in huge ways and you want that. You want that so bad, you deny yourself food so you can just devote yourself begging God to help your ministry Accomplish great ends for his glory. Or maybe you fast because you want to gain victory over your flesh. Now those are just seven ways that fasting can be used. Uh, We can explore each one of those in the scriptures, but we don't have time. I'm just going to talk about the last one because it's so common, it's so needful, especially in America, that all of us could learn to gain more victory over our flesh. Now, let's just talk about this. Some people never say no to their flesh. I mean, as soon as you, a little bit thirsty, you drink. A little bit hungry, you eat. And usually more than you should. It just, whenever any fleshly impulse comes, you just satisfy it, satisfy it. We're kind of in this thing. You deserve it. You need it. Don't deny yourself. That's what the media, that's what the world tells you. Indulge, indulge, indulge. But this isn't Christian behavior. This isn't Christian behavior. You know, every time you're hungry, you don't need to eat. Every time you're thirsty, you don't need to drink. Every time you lust, you don't have to gratify it with pornography or fornication. If you want to feel awake, you don't have to drink caffeine. If you want to sleep, you don't need to take a pill. You don't have to just pamper your flesh and just give your flesh whatever your flesh wants. No. Christian behavior is to be a master over your flesh. So your flesh does what you want it to. Paul makes it clear in Galatians chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things that you please. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, For those who are according to the flesh, that their minds in the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not evil, even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
It is so clear in the scriptures that Christians are to walk according to the spirit and not let their flesh tell them how to live or what to do. Your flesh is that part of you that is sin-cursed and corrupted and dying. Paul refers to it as his body of death. And your, your flesh just wants you to die. It will kill you. That's why Paul calls, it, calls the body of death. Fasting is to confront your flesh and to tell it what to do. It's, it's kind of like exercise. Just like exercise is a discipline. You know how it is. Um, you come home and you just your body says, sit in the easy chair. And then grab the remote and turn it on. Set it right on the arm. So you don't have to lift your arm up. And you can just hit the button with your finger. Or you can tell your wife, change the channel. So you don't move. Then you've got this thought. You know, I should be exercising. I said I was going to exercise and I haven't exercised today. I didn't do it yesterday either. I know I should do this. Your body's saying, exercise later. Just sit there. Here, eat some ice cream. And your body's saying, your mind's saying, you know, I should exercise. I shouldn't do that. I need to see that right there. Your body would just have you hold still and die. Your body tells you, just indulge me, feed me, give me what I want, satiate me. And it will just have you hold still and just die. Because your body is against you. It is against the spirit. But Paul said, for instance, when speaking about lust in 1 Corinthians six twelve, all things are lawful for me. That is all things that are permitted in the word of God, but not all things are profitable. The Bible allows me, he says, to do a lot of things, but I don't do all those things that it allows me to do. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Anything. I don't want anything telling me, I don't want my body, me dragging me anywhere. I'm dragging my body where I want it to go. I'm telling my body when to get up and when to go to bed and when to exercise and when to hold still and what to eat. I'm going to be a master of my body. He goes on to say in chapter 9, verse 27, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I tell my body what to do. My body is at my beck and call. Body, get up. Body, run. Jog. Do sit-ups. Don't eat that. Don't look at that. Turn away from this. You, you tell your body what to do. You don't let your body tell you what to do because your body just wants you to sin and die. That's what your body wants you to do. And fasting, of course, is the practice of saying no to your flesh and it's your and its desires. You know, let's say you 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 love drinking coffee. I know there's probably hardly any of you in here who like to drink coffee, but let's just say there were. And you decide, you know what, I'm not going to drink coffee for a month. Some of you are looking at me like, this is an illustration, right? You need to not drink coffee for a month. One of the things I did in seminary is I love coffee. And so I would drink so much coffee, I'd be exhausted laying in bed and my heart would be kind of leaping around in my chest. And so I decided I'm just not going to drink any coffee unless it was midterms week and finals week. And by not drinking it the rest of the time when I did drink it, it was like jet fuel. It was great. But why is that? Because I want to make sure that I'm not a slave. I don't want to be a slave to coffee. You know, you don't need coffee. You need the Lord. I know some people say, but I don't have my coffee in the morning. I die. No. 
If you don't have the Lord, you'll die. Not only in this life, but the life to come. You need the Lord. You don't need coffee and say, are you sure? I'm sure. <laughs> and if you're out there thinking, oh, no, no, no. And your wife's looking at you like, are you listening? <laughs> maybe you should try that. Maybe you should try that. And maybe you just drink one cup of coffee a day, but you always drink it and you love it. And you grasp that thing like it's your own little idol. And you, you first you smell it. And then you drink it. Mm, and you take that sip. It's a... Is that how you have your devotions? Do you grab your Bible and go... And then you read that verse and go... Maybe. Maybe it's time to go on a little trial fast. To remind yourself that you need Jesus. But you don't need the coffee or the tea or whatever it is. I'm just using that as an example because I knew it would slay most of you. (laughs) Denying yourself food is a training ground. It strengthens you to say no to your flesh. And what's cool about it is there's so many great spiritual parallels. You see, what's neat about it is it's okay to eat. It's okay to drink coffee. You can do that. But what, like what Paul says, but I don't want to be mastered by that. I know I need to eat to live, but I don't want to be mastered by that. In America, we have so many choices. Have you noticed that? You know, maybe you just like decide, I'm only going to eat rice only for a week. And you're thinking, oh. You know, Americans, we're, we're just so, we don't even know what it's like. A third of the world only eats rice. And when somebody asks out, it's like, man, that's cruel. You're asking, that is a cruel thing. Well, maybe it would just be good if we just had white rice all week. Just white rice only. Why? So we could appreciate the infinite variety of things. Have you ever gone to the store and actually stopped there to do this this week now? When you go to the grocery store and you're, you're at the drink aisle, just look and look at all those drinks. Look at them all. And those aren't all the ones. Those are just like some of them. There's all the other ones sprinkled all around the store. Hundreds and hundreds of varieties when you used to have water. You go to the cereal aisle. Cereal. I mean, what if there was... You go to the cereal aisle and there's all Cheerios. It would make life easier, wouldn't it? Well, I could have a large box of Cheerios or a smaller box. But since that's all I eat, I'll get the big box. You know, that's it. We have so many choices given to us. So many indulgences. You know, you go out to lunch. uh, You know, there are some restaurants where you go and you just... You open up the menu and the next page, it's the next page and the next, and fine little print and you're trying to find something you want. Well, they're all good, but you want to find the thing that's most good. Right? That's why in and outs good. You got five things, you just get something. You either get a burger, burger, or burger, you know? Different sizes, but it makes life simple. But see, we receive, we have so many options given to us that pretty, thing, pretty soon we think that we need those options and that we deserve those options and that if we don't have those options, we're having a crisis. No, we're not. We're having a crisis if we aren't trusting in the Lord. We're having a crisis if we're letting our flesh drag us around. We're having a crisis if we're not living for God's glory and making our flesh our slave. Our text says, 
before Paul and Barnabas were sent on in this first ministry, missionary journey, that they ministered to the Lord, fasted, and prayed. We also see in our text that their fasting was only for a time while they were fasting. And then, that's what it says in verse 2, and then after it talks about the process, they were fasting. In the process of fasting, verse 3 says, and when they had fasted, which tells us their fasting came to an end. And this is what you need to understand. Fasting is for a time. It's for a time. Now, let's say, uh, you know, you knew somebody who went on a diet one time. We have so many diets now, you can go on. And these are really partial fasts for most, most people. Because what you're saying is, I am going to eat this and I'm not going to eat that. That's a, it's a partial fast. It's really a fast. The problem is, is it's a fast. That's not good. Why? Because you're going to go off the fast. Fasts end. And then as soon as they end, what do we do? You know, we swell back up again. Why? Because we treated it as a fast rather than a lifestyle change. I am not going to do these things anymore. You need to make lifestyle changes, not go on and off diets. You change. Otherwise, you're just going to go through these cycles that some of you have been through many times where you lose weight, gain it, lose weight, gain it, lose weight, gain it. See why? Because you're going on and off, on and off. You're fasting. You're going through a partial fast rather than just saying, you know what, I'm going to change my life. And the way I eat or exercise. So a spiritual fast has a beginning and an end. It has a time frame, a period. Might be a day, might be a month, I don't know. Depends what kind and what, to what degree you're fasting, whether you're doing the, the normal, partial, or absolute type of a fast. And so there are both sinful and God-honoring ways to fast. There's fasting for practical purposes and Fasting for spiritual ends. If you read up on fasting, you'll discover this huge variety of people who tell you all these different things about fasting. But really, it's not that difficult. If you just look in the scriptures and you look at each text in its context, you can find out whether or not you have to fast or it's an option. And so let's look at that right now. First, let's start off with fasting in the Old Testament era. You know, I think it's a good question to ask. Did the Jews have to fast or was it an option? If you're Jewish, you may know, if you're any sort of practicing Jew, you would know that every day in the Day of Atonement, you fast for 24 hours. You have an absolute fast. You know that uh, during the, the war in, what, 1973, when Israel was attacked, they did it after the, they knew the people had fasted 20 hours. They were 20 hours into the fast when the attack came. And so you may think, yeah, we need to do that. Why? Well, because it says in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, and again, referring to the same thing in Leviticus 23, verses 26 through 29, that they were to humble themselves on the Day of Atonement. What's interesting is there are three or four words that can be translated fasting, but it's not used in that text. The word that is used there, humble yourself, really means to inflict yourself with inner pain. Now, fasting is probably one of the easiest ways to inflict yourself with inner pain. If you quit eating, your stomach starts, you know, growling and nodding up and reminding you that I'm hungry in here, feed me. And so fasting was just a common way that people would humble themselves. But it's not the only way. For instance, uh, when I was reading that statement by Abraham Lincoln, 
Did any of you kind of feel like a, as I kind of got towards the end, like, oh, our country isn't like that anymore. Did you feel that kind of inner pain? Well, that's one way. When you have grief, when you have sorrow, when you're repentant of sin, when you have some sort of remorse, you can also inflict your, yourselves. So though fasting was a common way to humble yourself, it's not mandated on the Day of Atonement. Inflicting yourself with inner pain is. Fasting is not, though fasting was one of the common ways the Jews did humble themselves and inflict themselves with inner pain. What this means is that nowhere in the law of Moses was there a command to fast on a regular basis. Nowhere. There, there is an instance where God calls the nation to humble themselves and to do a whole bunch of things, fasting included, as a one-time thing in order to avert judgment. And that's in Joel chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. The people had sinned and sinned and sinned against the Lord. And God promises judgment. And this is what we read. Act, uh, Joel 1, 13 begins, Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar, come and spend the night in sackcloth. Uh, O ministers of God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from my house of your God. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. And the whole point there is, boy, judgment. God's drawn back his his hand, and he's got the baseball bat in there, and he's going to bring it down on you unless you repent. And so you better mourn, repent, fast, and approach him in prayer, otherwise you're going to get it. And so in that one instance, there is a, a call to fast. But there was no ongoing requirement. What about voluntary fasting in the Old Testament? Yes, we see that. At times, the Jews, when they were in desperate straits, when they faced a problem, when they encountered a lot of the things we've already mentioned so far that people encounter in their life, oftentimes would fast. Let me give you just three examples here. In Judges chapter 20, verse 26, when Israel was having a civil civil war, Judah fought against one of their brothers, the tribe of Benjamin, and the people of Israel wept and fasted. In 1 Samuel 7, 6, the sons of Israel are fearful of facing the Philistines in battle. So they seek out the prophet Samuel and Samuel says, let's all pray and fast. Maybe God will protect us and give us victory over the Philistines. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 16 through 20, when David was suffering the consequences of his own sin, his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, where God said as a consequence, the child that would be born to them would die. He fasted that God might change his mind. So these are just examples, and we could look at plenty of examples of people fasting. It was common. It was common among Jews, and it was common among pagans. You remember what happened when Jonah, right? When Jonah went into Nineveh, and he said, In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And what happened? The whole lot of them humbled themselves, wore sackcloth, and fasted. And they were pagans. It was common among Jews. It was common among the pagans. People fasted when they wanted something from their God because it was a sign of deep humility and self-denial for some sort of spiritual purpose. 
But the bottom line is Jews were never commanded to fast on an ongoing basis. Then we come to fasting in the Gospels, which is still in the Old Testament era. Jesus is a Jew under the law of Moses, talking to Jews under the law of Moses. We need to keep this in mind. Jesus uh, affirmed things like observing the Sabbath, of giving a tenth of all you have, of offering animal sacrifices. Of course, we don't do those things. We must be very careful to remember that we are not under the law of Moses, but Jesus was. Jesus affirmed it. Jesus upheld it. Jesus fulfilled it. And the Jews at that time were so steeped in fasting, it was like the major, major thing that you do when you want to let others know you're really godly, which of course is not godly. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary, speaking of fasting, says, quote, The setting for the New Testament understanding of fasting lies in the development of the rabbinic tradition that grew out of the period between the Testaments, during which fasting became the distinguishing mark of the pious Jew, even though it was largely still ritualistic. Vows were confirmed by fasting. Remorse and penitence were accompanied by fasting. And prayer was supported by fasting. Special fast days were observed, some voluntarily imposed. This developed into a rabbinic tradition in which fasting was viewed as a meritorious, and meritorious that means earning favor from God, and therefore became the primary act of demonstrating piety. It was, however, a false piety, consisting mostly in the externals of fastidious observances of fast days, both public and private. You remember in uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 2, where we have the little story of the, paracl- the parable of the para- publican and the, and the tax collector, and how the tax collector comes into the temple, and he's beating his breast, and he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But what does the Pharisee say? He stands up with his chest puffed out, looking down at the tax collector, and says, I fast twice a week. And yet, he was not the one who went away justified. His fasting was really a cloak for hypocrisy. Fasting was a tradition of man taught and modeled by the Jews. And it's not wrong. There were people who fasted for godly ends and godly means and not to be seen by men. But for the most part, it was a tradition and it was they, all the people were taught that if you're fast, you let people know you're fasting. You, you show them that you're pious by your fasting. So, you know how it is. You, you, you want somebody to know that you're doing something righteous. So they go, oh, that person's godly. So in that case, you know, you look gaunt, you dishovel your hair, kind of, you know, make, put some ash on your face and, you know, you come walking into work. People go... What's, what's, what's wrong? Oh, I'm fasting under the Lord. <laughs> really? Maybe you should eat some. Oh, no. No, I want to give glory to God. You don't need to feel sorry for me. I'm okay. I'll make it. <laughs> See? Jesus says, no. No. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. We know that Jesus fasted, right? He fasted from using his cell phone in church. Um... <laughs> Remember, what's really interesting, in the first service, somebody's phone went off at this exact same spot. (laughs) 
God is speaking to me. I don't know what it is. I'll think about it. If any of you understand what that means, tell me. Uh, but Jesus fasted, didn't he, when he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Remember, God had uh, led him out, the Holy Spirit had led him out for the very purpose of being tempted. And so, when we're isolated from people, we're more vulnerable. When we're physically weak, we're more vulnerable. And what the Spirit did is the Spirit purposely put Jesus into the place of maximum, maximum temptation. And so... Jesus is there. You can imagine after 40 days of not eating, you would be literally starving to death. You would be on the verge of death. You would be so hungry. And Satan comes along and says, well, if you are the son of God, and he was, why don't you just say a couple of these stones right here? Bread, all slathered with butter. And just take that. And Jesus, being God, Jesus, having created the heavens and earth, could say, yeah. (laughs) And just stuff his face. I mean, that would be exceedingly tempting. After 40 days of not eating, you would just be ravenously hungry. But the reason for Jesus' 40-day fast and his isolation from people is to put him into a place of ultimate temptation so that he can sympathize with our weakness, having been tempted in all things as we are, yet to a greater degree, but without sin. And that's why Jesus had that happen. That doesn't mean all of us need to go out in the middle of the Mojave Desert and for 40 days and see if we can do it too. No, Jesus did it. So he could sympathize with us so he could be tempted in all things as we are as our great high priest. If you are going to fast, Jesus says, don't do it hypocritically. Don't do it to be seen by men. He said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. I'm fasting today. Never mind the gaunt look and the drawn face and the disheveled hair. It's just me being godly now. It's you sinning upon sin is what you're doing. He says, truly I say to you, those who do that thing have their reward in full. But you, when you fast... Anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus is addressing these people in the Sermon on the Mount who are steeped in this Jewish tradition. He's not saying fasting is bad. He's saying if you fast, he's regulating fasting. If you choose to fast... Don't do it in a hypocritical way. Don't do it to be seen by men. Make sure nobody knows. John Calvin rightly said, quote, fasting is not approved by God except for its end. It must be connected with something else. Otherwise, it is a vain thing. Men, by private fastings, prepare themselves for the exercise of prayer. For they mortify their own flesh or seek to remedy for some, seek a remedy for some hidden vice. He goes on to say, prayers belong strictly to the worship of God. Fasting is a subordinate aid, which is pleasing to God no further than as it aids the earnestness and fervency of prayer. 
End quote. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record another important text on fasting. Uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're wondering about something. And uh, the Luke's version reads in Luke 5, verses 33 through 35, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. And the disciples of the Pharisees often do the same, but yours eat and drink. Like, what's going on here? Look at, look at, they're all, we're, twice a week, we're fasting, but you're not. Twice a week, we're doing our tradition, but you're not. Your disciples aren't doing that. What's the deal? That's what they're asking. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. This is a time for rejoicing. God has come to earth in the person of a man. And while they're with me, they don't need to fast. They just need to come to me. I'm here. Right here in the flesh. But I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And then they're going to fast. And that's what we see in Acts 13. That's the first place we see it being done. Acts 13, our text. And so fasting was something that Jesus knew would happen. He didn't have any problem against it, but he doesn't command it. He just regulates it. Now, what about fasting in the church age? Well, there are two places in the book of Acts where fasting is mentioned. Our text, it's mentioned twice, verses 2 and 3. And then again, in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, when Paul and Barnabas go to the church at Derby, and they're going to, uh, they commission some elders, they appoint elders in the church, and then they fast and pray for the success of those elders shepherding that local church. That's it. That's all. <laughs> There's nothing else. That's why I didn't go to some epistle and pull out some great text on fasting. There is none. There's no mention of fasting in any of the letters to churches. There's one that some, if you have, I think, the King James Version or the Russian Version of the Bible. Um, you run into this. So I go to Russia. I have discussions about this. But um, you remember that text in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, where Paul is speaking about marriage and he's talking about the husband needs to fulfill his duty to the wife and the wife needs to fulfill her duty to the husband and let them come apart only for time for the purpose of prayer. Well, some of the later, less reliable manuscripts have prayer and fasting. None of the earlier, the older manuscripts have it, but some of the later ones do. And it appears, I think it may be in the King James, I'm not sure, but some of, some versions have it in there. It shouldn't be in there. None of the older versions do. But since prayer was often accompanied by fasting, some scribe popped it in there. Uh, by accident, probably, or on purpose, but it's not to be there. What that means is fasting is an optional, an optional discipline for the Christian, but a good one. And we'll talk about it right now. So let's move to our final point. So it wasn't required for the Jews, and it was it's not required for Christians. There's no place in any of the letters to churches where it says you better fast, However, it's a good discipline to, fa to, to do. It's a good godly discipline. Why is that? Well, do you think there's ever a time when you might want to seriously devote yourself to prayer? 
or maybe intensely pray before making a big decision or when needing wisdom from God because you're facing a trial or because you need to deny your flesh or to pray to God because you know you have sinned against him or because you need deliverance and protection or that You need to fast and pray so that you can have successful ministry. Or maybe you need to fast because you need to gain victory over the flesh. And I know that pretty much all of us need all of those things. So fasting, if it's done right, is a great way to help you in those areas. The hardest part of fasting is not telling anyone. There there is, you know, we all want glory for ourselves. And, you know, you always just kind of drop in conversation. Yeah, I professed it last Thursday. And God says, oh, I was going to bless you for that. You got it. That was it. That person just gave you everything you're getting for that one. You just want to kind of just elude. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I was fasting the other day, it's like, oh, oh you got your reward. And if you're married, it becomes a little more difficult you know, you think, oh, man, I just need to fat. I need to talk to the Lord about this. And honey, you haven't eaten any breakfast. You haven't eaten any lunch. Here, eat something. Eat something. You know, out come the cookies. Out come the sandwich. Out, all the best things are all sitting there. Like, no, honey, I'm not going to do this. And it's like, come on, eat. Why aren't you eating? Well, you can't lie and say, well, I'm not hungry because you're, you're starving. Like, get that thing out of here. That's why it's probably good to have a discussion with your wife or whoever is close to you in your life and just let them know listen periodically i may fast and if you see me not eating do not drill into me just leave me alone i'm not going to die now after it's been 40 days you can get concerned (laughs) when i start looking like i came out of a concentration camp sure you can get concerned but until i look like that and most of us are nowhere close to that um don't worry about it it's not going to kill me So if you want to fast, and I would encourage you to try this, talk about fasting with others, pray about it, talk to the Lord about it, about how specifically you might fast. You might want to just start out with some partial fasts, identify some of those dainty morsels or hot steamy drinks that you love, that you have to have, and then choose not to have them for a period of time. Maybe start with a week first. Maybe just a day for some of you. But maybe some of you need to go for a week till you kind of just get break the habit. And so they're not mastering you anymore. And you might want to schedule regular fasts of one kind or another. You, know, you can do all kinds of little creative things. Even if you, know, you have medical issues and health issues, so you can't go on absolute fast, you can still do things like, hey, I'm, I'm not going to eat you know, desserts for a week. And so every time my wife, you know, makes things and brings them in, I'm going to say no to that. Or I go out to dinner, I'm going to say no to that. You know, my wife makes all sorts of things. And, you know, sometimes I tell her, you're just after our life insurance money. That's what you're after. (laughs) She's a good cookie baker, dessert maker. Anyways, Sometimes, you know, you come, I come in and I've thought, you know, I just need to quit eating, man. I'm just eating. I'm just buffeting my body like crazy instead of buffeting it. And um, 
I come home and there's a big plate of chewy chocolate chip cookies with little bits of pecan in there. And it's like, I'm just looking at them and I can smell and the whole house smells like them. It is good for me to say no and to run outside and get in the garage, you know, get away from them. Why? Because that's a good discipline. Saying no to that permissible thing gives me strength when an ungodly lust comes calling. And that's the value. That is the value in so many instances to just gain mastery over your body so that your body isn't dragging you around or to just say, you know what? I've got this sin in my life. It keeps happening. It keeps happening. Lord, on such and such a day, I'm just going to go. I'm going to do a normal fast. I'm not going to eat any food for 24 hours. And every time my stomach growls, I'm going to beg you to deliver me from this issue. I'm sick and tired of committing this sin. And that's a good thing. I would recommend that you do it. It would be better for you to go out without food periodically than to keep indulging in any sin. You know, you need to think about how you can use this little thing called fasting, which is optional, as a tool to help you get serious about some of the things that we've talked about. So far, we have talked about building secret prayer into your life. So you're doing that? I hope some of you are. Some people said, man, I've really been trying to be faithful just a little bit every day. You know, just remember the most important part about being faithful in prayer is just to be faithful. Consistency, making it a habit is the most important thing, not the duration. Duration follows. So if you're having trouble praying, just try to do, you know, even 10 minutes a day. That's like one commercial spot in the TV program. Hit mute and bell your head and do it. Maybe two commercial spots. That would be radical. That'd be 20 whole minutes. Instead of watching them and listening to them, bye, 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 you could just pray. Maybe this a whole week, whenever the commercials come in, you click it off and you pray through all the commercial spots. You'd probably feel guilty about what you were watching. Anyways, uh, it's like, okay, Lord, I'm going to start off confessing here. Anyways, yeah. Do it. Make sure you keep practicing secret prayer. And the next thing we talked about is practicing prayer all day long. Remember how we talked about how you can just go through life just talking to God about, Lord, when you wake up, help me this day, live for your glory. And as you're, you know, getting ready, Lord, thank you for this food and, and help me to drive to work safely and help me to do a good job and help me be, to be respectful to others and help me to, you know, get accounts and help me to prosper and help me to speak to my boss and help me to do whatever, help me to raise my kids. We're all day long. You're talking with God. You're talking with God to cultivate that ongoing communion with God. Now add to that some fasting. Some fasting, even partial fasting for the Lord, not for dieting, not for detoxifying, not for boasting, but for a spiritual end. Take whatever you really love, that thing you go after the most, that thing you don't need, whatever that is. And you you see it right now sitting there before you steaming calling to you, come to me. And you're saying, I'm going to say no to you for this period of time, a day, a week, whatever it is. 
And I'm going to just deny myself. Get in the habit of doing that. It's so great. I mean, the, the pastors, we would all be very large if we ate all the food that you bring to us and put in our break room. You're trying to kill us. I know you are. We go in there and, oh, there they are, little tea cakes and cinnamon poppers and all these things. I just like, oh, I just got to walk out and go to my office and have some water. You know, I mean, that doesn't seem good, but it's good to say no. It's good to learn to say no, because if you can say no to your to food, then it's going to give you strength to say no to other fleshly lusts. And it will also be that pain from hunger will be a constant internal alarm to say, why are you doing this? Oh yeah, I'm supposed to be praying about this. And you can pray about any number of helpful things. Andrew Murray said, prayer is reaching out after the unseen. Fasting is letting go of all that is seen and temporal. Fasting helps express, deepen, and confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, even ourselves, to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God, end quote. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for what we have learned this morning and the great discipline of fasting. I pray that we would all try fasting in different ways, that we would experiment, that we would learn good lessons from it, that we would not do it to be seen by men, that, Father, we would do it for your glory and honor, That, Father, we would maybe do certain things and combine multiple disciplines at the same time, prayer and fasting, and maybe saving what we gain from denying ourselves and giving it to you or a spiritual cause or to the poor, the needy. Father, there are so many things that could be done. But, Father, may we do it to your glory, to your honor, and for spiritual purposes that we might learn to master our flesh and might be reminded of more important things. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.